Really excited to give you a quick review uh, from our time last week. Uh, we, we opened up, the series is titled Walking in the Light. And uh, the main idea, if you will, of our time last week was that experiencing joy begins with Jesus. And two of the ways in which we cultivate joy is uh, in fellowship with God and the people of God. As we walk through this series, uh, you're going to hear some uh, repetitive language from John, such as the word fellowship. Uh, and part of the reason, if not one of the biggest reasons that he uses this language and uses these phrases is to emphasize and press into his readers and ourselves to press, uh, press us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, with all that being said, I really uh, am excited for our time. I'd love to just dive right in. Last week, I think I preached for a little bit over an hour because uh, it was an, introductory, an introduction into 1 John, and uh, I, I kind of just want to get into it this morning. I hope you guys are cool with that. Uh, so, this morning, I'd like to start off our time by asking you a question, and, and this question, I want you to choose on it uh, while we're worshiping together. I want you to chew on it when you leave here. I want you to chew on it during the week. I want you to chew on it forevermore. Uh, I think it is a very simple, yet a question that is not easy. And in addition to that, this question is going to set us up for our time this morning. And here we go. I know I've talked, I'm giving you all sorts of suspense, uh, but here, here it is. Does your doctrine, I'm going to repeat this twice, but does your doctrine, and, and doctrine would be defined as, as a set of beliefs that you hold to, convictions that you hold to, as they have been revealed to you through God's word. For instance, if you visit our website, we have this page called We Believe or Our Beliefs, and we walk through what we believe about the triune God, uh, his word, salvation, and so on. That is a set of doctrine. Nonetheless, here's the question. Does your doctrine begin with what you believe about yourself, or does it begin with God? That's it. Simple, not easy, right? That's, that is the slogan for 2020, I think. Simple, but not easy. I'll repeat the question. Does your doctrine begin with what you believe about yourself, or does it begin with what you believe about God. We're going to refer to this question throughout our time this morning. John is going to unpack this question for us by challenging us with three types of teachings that are in error. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And so he's going to challenge us with that. But before we dive into the text, the truth is, the reality is, I should say, is that if our doctrine of, of life, let's call it that, if our doctrine of life begins with ourselves, then we inevitably find ourselves in danger. We find ourselves in danger because you and I are going to want to justify a certain lifestyle. We're going to want to justify certain decisions that we make. And we're going to want to justify our comfort. And so for many, often, and this might be you, but for many, our doctrine 
doesn't begin with God precisely because it makes us uncomfortable. Like what we believe, you're gonna hear this like forevermore, and I've even made it artistic today to make it sound cool, but it's the same thing. What you believe shapes how you live. We, we talk about that a lot. And so the truth is that if your belief, your doctrine, if it doesn't begin with God, if we're honest, the reason it doesn't begin with God is because we don't want to be made uncomfortable. The reason it doesn't begin with God is because, whether we know it or not, if it did begin with God, he would expose the condition of our hearts. If it did begin with God, he would expose the things that you and I don't want to talk about. He would expose the things that make you and I uncomfortable. He would expose things that you and I would have to bring to light. In fact, he would even expose things that you and I would just not want to talk about and ultimately reject and use some really cool language and hashtags to kind of get away from it. Earlier this week, uh, Eric, one of the, the musicians that was up here this morning, Eric and I went to a concert to go see some amazing bands. It was awesome. It was fun. And, uh, and we were in this venue, and it was super dark. And uh, so the bands are doing their thing. Uh, they're, 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 they're performing, and it was excellent, and it's super dark. And everybody around us, including ourselves, we're singing, we're dancing, we're jumping. We're just really enjoying our time. And you couldn't really tell what was going on other than the fact that you're bumping shoulders with people, right? And you could just feel sweat, right? But everybody's just kind of jumping around and having a really good time. And at the end of the show, the production crew turned on all of the lights. And when they turned on all of the lights, everybody was exposed, whether you were just covered in sweat uh, or you were doing, they were doing things that they weren't supposed to. Everybody was exposed. Everybody was made vulnerable. What John is going to do in challenging us is he's going to tell us that God is light. And as a result, God himself is going to expose us. And while he will make us vulnerable, he will not leave us without hope. And I think that's one of the scary things, a slight tangent, I think that's one of the scary things about vulnerability, is that in vulnerability, we often feel like we are without hope. And so what God is going to do through John is he will expose the condition of our hearts. He will expose our motivations. And he will inevitably make us vulnerable. But in that vulnerability, he doesn't leave us there and he does not leave us without hope or redemption. And so what I'd like to do is read the text once more and then I'll pray and then we're going to park on verse 5 because it is that important. And actually, before I read, here's, here's my main idea. I always try to hook you up with that, right? This is, so what we believe shapes how we live. I'm going to say that differently to sound cool. Here's the main idea. Biblical doctrine informs fervent devotion. So artsy. 
but those, that language is, is, is intentional. In other words, what we believe about God, that's biblical doctrine, informs our devotion, what you and I do in our ordinary life. And that word fervent implies passion. That word fervent implies conviction. That word fervent implies that it is coming from the depths of your soul. So it's very intentional, yet artistic, I think. That's as artistic as I get. Here we go. First John, beginning in uh, verse 5, chapter 1, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Actually, let's just pause there and, and I'll pray. God, as we come before you in worship, uh, Lord, I pray that you would be at work in us. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be uh, not only present, but at work. God, uh, you are going to uh, challenge us. You're going to challenge the condition of our hearts. You're going to challenge uh, what we believe about you and, and ultimately ourselves through John. And so, God, I pray that we would humble ourselves right now in order to receive your word. God, through the author of Hebrews, you tell us that, that your word penetrates through bone and marrow and discerns the intentions of our hearts. And so, God, may I be set aside and may the truth of that word reign loudly in our lives this morning. God, the, the, the slogan that we throw around uh, both seriously and, in, and, and jokingly is simple but not easy. God, your word is, is simple and clear, but sometimes we complicate it or sometimes it's just not, not easy. And so I pray that you would give us not just clarity, but you would give us conviction so that we would turn to Jesus. Last week, Lord, we, we talked about experiencing joy and how that begins with Jesus. This week, we're talking about doctrine and devotion. God, I pray that, that those two things would be rooted in our eyes and hearts aligned with Jesus. So God, set me aside. Holy Spirit, be at work in the hearts of my brothers and my sisters, and may this bring you glory, um, and, uh, and may this be for our good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to start off with verse 5. We're, we're going to park here for a while, uh, because as John opens up, uh, he is opening up with a profound statement. You see, the, the, the part, of, part of his argument is that it, it's against many who believe that they are above or beyond sin. And, and as I mentioned, you're going to hear some, some repetitive language. And so God, through John, is going to expose their hearts and he's going to expose their motives through three errors of, of teaching. But before that, he opens up this section of Scripture by saying, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That is a profound statement because it has great implication for you and I. See, before addressing these errors or these denials, John's doctrine begins with God. In fact, it begins specifically with the holiness of God. 
And if we were to just preach on verse 5, the, the takeaway from, for, for you and I ought to be that our doctrine always must begin with God because God is the source of all that is good. He is the source of all that is moral. He is perfectly righteous and altogether pure. Our doctrine must begin with God. If it begins with ourself, if it begins with man, we run into trouble. Briefly, I want you to listen to the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones pertaining to this. This is what he says. The Bible is constantly reminding us that we must start with God. If ever I start with man, I must ultimately go wrong in all my thinking about truth. Because if I start there, everything accommodates itself to my doctrine of man. Yet the doctrine of the Bible is that I can never know many truly unless I look at him in the sight of God and in the teaching concerning God. Here's what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is, is saying. He is saying that, that if my doctrine, my philosophy of life, if that begins with myself, then inevitably I am going to make accommodations for myself. I am going to pick and choose what I like and what I don't like, particularly when it comes to the character of God. And then that will shape my worldview. His argument is the Bible doesn't start with you. The Bible starts with God. Therefore, if we are going to learn more about ourselves, if we're going to understand ourselves, thus understanding the person and work of Jesus, we must begin with God. And the truth is, beginning with the doctrine of man, it's really about comfort. I was talking about this a little bit earlier. That if we begin with ourselves, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, we accommodate to ourselves. And the reason we accommodate to ourselves is because we want to be made comfort, uh, comfortable. And the, the danger of constantly making ourselves comfortable and us starting with the doctrine of man is that the problem is always someone else. It's always the world, the environment around us, and other people, but we'll never necessarily look at ourselves. If we begin with a doctrine of man and not God, what ends up happening is that a doctrine of man does not lead us to conviction. And if it does not lead us to conviction, it could not lead us to confession. If it does not lead us to confession, uh, confession, then we do not repent. So instead of conviction happening, you and I will begin to negotiate with God. We will begin to negotiate and justify our sins and behavior and conduct and heart. Because after all, God understands... And that's exactly what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying. He's saying we must begin with God. Going back to verse 5, when we begin with the holiness of God, which is what John is writing about when he says that God is light and there's no darkness in him, when we begin with the holiness of God, there are three things that help shape our perspective regarding the holiness of God. 
This should be on your notes, I think. If it's not, hope you enjoy, right? The first one is that the holiness of God informs us of our need for Jesus. The holiness of God informs us of our need for Jesus. When we begin with the holiness of God, we are reminded of God's plan of salvation and redemption because we only know Jesus as the result of his perfect work on the cross given our sinful corruption. When we begin with the holiness of God and and it informs our need for Jesus, you and I are reminded or at the very least exposed to the fact that we are sinners and we need to be forgiven. However, without sacrifice, he cannot forgive. And so who was the sacrifice? Jesus. Jesus was the sacrifice on the cross who paid for our sin. The holiness of God informs us of our need for Jesus. That's number one. The holiness of God also exposes false claims. When we begin to talk about temporary joys or temporary happiness or temporary peace, there is a reason uh, uh, the whole how are you doing, I'm fine is a stereotype. We want to latch on to temporary joys or false joys and temporary peace and temporary happiness, but the truth is that the holiness of God leads us to true and everlasting joy because the holiness of God or joy itself is rooted in the character, promise, and work of God for us in Christ. And so the holiness of God exposes false claims that you and I might want to latch on latch on to. Number three, the holiness of God informs you and I of our devotion. Our doctrine reveals our devotion. It reveals what you and I practice on the daily, not just on Sundays and not just at group. Our doctrine reveals our devotion. One way or another, you and I are preaching a sermon. The question is, is that sermon about Jesus? Earlier this week, uh, on Wednesday, uh, Christina and I were hanging out with uh, the students. So we do student ministry on Wednesday nights. And the question that we, we put on the whiteboard was, so it began with, What you believe shapes how you live. The question is, do you agree or disagree? And so one gets up and and says, I agree. However, here's the challenge. On one end, here is my faith. This is the person and work of Jesus. On this end, I have uh, my responsibilities. Work, home, friends, relationships, school, so on and so forth. I have to pay attention to this, but this, I think my faith runs in the background. Okay? We push the students. Agree or disagree? One gets up, circles both of those paths, and says this is actually one. Or this ought to be one. In other words, what we believe informs these other areas of our life. Great, awesome. We continue the conversation. Then the next question was, why... If what we believe shapes how we live, why are we inconsistent? 
And so then they start thinking, philosophizing, if you will. They start thinking. And so as we start discussing and going back and forth, we kind of pause. And then I beg the question, is this really a a contradiction or are we just preaching something else? Here's the truth. Whether you know Jesus or not, you're preaching something. Your doctrine reveals your devotion. It reveals your practice. And the holiness of God exposes not just our, devo- our, our doctrine, but it exposes our devotion. It exposes what and how we practice our doctrine. So again, one way or another, you and I are preaching a sermon. The question is, is it about Jesus? Let's go on to verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> In verses 6 through 10, now, or better yet, now that John has established his foundation of his argument, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, that is where he is going to come from. That is the angle that he is coming from. That is the argument that he is going to use in order to speak into these errors of teaching. He begins to address three denials or three errors. We're going to look at each one and we're going to contrast it with grace, essentially. The first one is walking in darkness versus walking in the light. This is in verse 6. He goes on to say, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Last week I told you that John is going to be straight up and say a couple of absolutes, kind of almost drawing a line in the sand. And so he's putting things on the table for you and I. And so once again, he opens verse 6 by saying, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The word walk implies a lifestyle or a disposition In other words, an individual who walks in darkness is an individual who is living a life of habitual and unrepented sin. In fact, it could be said that this individual, does uh, they lack confession, they lack repentance, they are not free from their sin. There is no dependence on God, and as a result of walking in the darkness, they do it willingly that there might be conviction of their sin, but there is no relief because there is no confession. There is no repentance. There is no turning away from it. The hard truth about this one is that it's going to force you and I to evaluate our walk with God. And am, am I walking in darkness? Or better yet, are, are you walking in darkness? Sin that has gone unconfessed. Sin that is not repented of. And maybe you're doing all the good things. Maybe you're showing up to church on Sunday. Maybe you're going to group. Maybe you have that fish on your van. Maybe you have a lot of good things. However, you are walking in darkness. You're walking in unconfessed repented sin. And so as a result, we got to define sin. And so we would define sin as rebellion against what God has said. It is opposition to God himself. 
We could say that walking in darkness is, at the end of the day, it is omitting the work of Jesus altogether. And he gives that caveat. He says, we say we have fellowship with him when we walk in darkness. We lie. You and I cannot have fellowship with God if we are separated from him as a result of our sin. In addition to that, fellowship is not mechanical. It's not something that just is. Fellowship is relational. Fellowship is intentional. Fellowship is a priority. Right? If we refer to last week, experiencing joy begins with Jesus. And so what is the the contrast to walking in darkness? Well, John continues, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light does not mean perfection but it does mean being set apart. It does mean pursuing godliness. Walking in the light is ongoing repentance. The church father Martin Luther said that when God called us, when our Lord Jesus called us to repent, he called us to a lifetime of repentance. Walking in the light is ongoing repentance. It is us bringing our stuff into the light so that we would grow in godliness and obedience so that we would be made more like Jesus. Walking in the light is the process of what many call purification. John says that if we walk in the light, Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That word cleanses, if you want to circle it, it is present tense. It is what Jesus is doing in and through you right now. That he is cleansing you of your sin, forgiving you of your sin, transforming you to be made more like him. Walking in the light demonstrates our doctrine. That's the first argument that that John makes. The second one, he continues, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What you're going to notice is in these arguments or these denials or these teachings, they're going to increasingly get more intense. So the first one was, if you walk in darkness and you say you have fellowship, you're actually lying. Now he goes on to say, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So the second point on the notes is deception versus confession. You and I deceive ourselves or can deceive ourselves in a multitude of ways. One extreme way is that you and I could say, well, because Jesus has saved me, I used to sin, but not anymore. I've actually heard people tell me that. So I'm not just pulling it out of nowhere, right? You and I can deceive ourselves by choosing to be ignorant, where we twist certain teachings 
Listen to Romans 6, verses 1 through 2. The Apostle Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Here's what Paul is saying. You and I sometimes make the excuse that, oh, because we have been covered by grace and because uh, we have been forgiven, we can just keep doing what we want to do and God's going to forgive us anyway. And that's the challenge that John is putting on the table before us. He's saying, you're actually deceiving yourself. You're actually not practicing the truth. Deceiving ourselves within that same scope is, is when you and I try, or not even try, but when you and I pursue to justify our behavior, to justify our conduct, just because Jesus died for us. How convenient that is. And so we pursue justification of our sin. We pursue the justification of how we treat one another. We pursue the justification of the condition of our hearts. And, and John is putting it on the table. He's saying, you're actually, you're actually deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. So, so what is the counter? What is grace? John continues. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That second part, we're going to talk about that toward the end. What I want to focus on right now is confession because it makes all of us uncomfortable. I want to focus on confession because I want to tell you a little bit about what confession is. To begin confession, the confession of our sins, or, or to begin with confession itself, confession means that we agree with the charges that have been brought before us. It requires us to be honest. One of the things that I, 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 I say a lot up here is like, hey, the, the work of Jesus right, is, uh, is for you, but it's not about you. If you want something to be about you, it would be the confession of your sin. It is all about you, right? So if you want to believe in yourself, or to confess your sin. Everybody's like, no. Right? That's where it starts. Confession begins with agreement. And it requires us to be honest with the charges or the sin that have been brought before us. Confession requires us to address, here it is, this is the hard one. I think probably one of the, 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 the harder ones out of all whatever I have in my mind. Confession requires us to address specific sins, particular sins. See, that first part of confession, where you and I have to be honest with our sin or the charges that have been brought before us, you and I can be like, got it, okay, yeah, yes, I've sinned. Right? You might even pull some, uh, something from Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, I have sinned. But the second part, the second part now requires us to address specific, particular sins. That is what it means by actually bringing them out into the light. That's really hard. I get it. That, 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 is, that is really hard because... It's not just addressing specific sins. It's, it's us actually facing our sins without being general about our sins. Well, everybody sins. Everybody struggles with pride. Everybody struggles with X, Y, and Z. No one is perfect, right? Well, we're not talking about everyone. 
talking about you. This is about you, remember? Nobody wants to say amen to that. Um, <laughs> when we have to address specific sins, it forces us to face them without being general. It forces us to face our sins without having to balance them. Here's what I mean by balancing our sins. You might look at your sins. You might even be specific, but you might counter them by saying, but I did these good things on Monday and Tuesday. Sure, I dropped the ball on Wednesday and Thursday, but it kind of evens out, right? You deceive yourself and preach a lie to yourself, right? You deceive yourself by preaching that I can get into the grace of God through my effort rather than remembering you already have the grace of God for you in Christ. So we deceive ourselves. Anyway, so it is agreement, it is specific, it is resolution. And then in other words, like we're gonna confess our sin to one another, we're gonna confess our sin to God, we're gonna be specific about our sin, and then there's resolution. What does that mean? Well, what are you gonna do about it? Like this is the practical side of it. This is where we make the plan and maybe it means changing things or getting rid of things or doing things differently, whatever that is. There is resolution. Some of you don't like resolution. You want to put it in the, on the table. Man, I've confessed. You know, I'm just, I just keep struggling with this, this one sin. But you're not actually doing anything about it. The next one is grief and sorrow. That is, if you and I know Jesus, we know what he has done for us. That is, that he was and is our perfect sacrifice, that he went to the cross to die for sinners, paying their penalty on our behalf. Our sin ought to grieve us. It ought to grieve us. Now, we can get into one another's personality and say, well, you know, I might not grieve the same. You're absolutely right. Everyone's going to be different in that regard. And we still ought to grieve our sin. It is the root of our pride. It is the root of our bitterness that we are grieving because we have sinned against a holy God. And then finally, when we confess our sin, we're actually bringing God glory because in confession, we realize that God's grace is our only hope. That is our only hope in confession. And so we remember that his grace for us is a commitment he made, not because of our effort, but because of his glory and his name. God is committed to you because of his name and his glory. So you can step into confession as hard as that is. And I get it. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm speaking about it like it's easier said than done. I get it. It's going to take time when you do it in front of people. It's going to take, like, patience. It's going to take grace. There's all these things. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I get that. So we're looking at this maybe 20,000-foot view. But all of these things happen in confession. And we, we're not just, it, it is what David says in Psalm 51, 3 and 4, where he acknowledges his transgression, and then he goes on to say, against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. That's confession. Number three, our word versus his word. Uh, this is where John closes this in chapter one. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. As I mentioned, each one of these errors in teaching like intensifies each time. So it was walking in darkness, it was deceiving ourselves. Now he's flat out saying, this is the individual who says they have no sin. 
Like they are sinless. So I'll just, this is how I want to approach this. This is really how I was thinking about it. It's kind of systematic. I hope you follow along. If you are an individual that says you have no sin, then check it. That means that God is a liar and that there is no need for the forgiveness of sins. And if there is no need for the forgiveness of sins, then the incarnation, that is Jesus entering into human uh, history, was totally unnecessary. And if that is totally unnecessary, then you and I are still dead in our sin right now. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 14. This is what Paul says. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. The pursuit of holiness is not perfection, but an increase in godliness and obedience. The pursuit of holiness is not perfection, but an increase in godliness and obedience. Godliness and obedience are marks of children of God. The Apostle Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former ways. The the beauty of that verse is that Peter addresses Christians, hey, you belong to God. You have been purchased by the blood of Christ. You went from enemy to friend, orphan to daughter or son. Therefore, as an obedient child of God, pursue holiness, grow in godliness, grow in obedience, because you are mine. It's not so that you would become mine because you already belong to me. Our doctrine informs our devotion. God as light exposes our hearts and our sins, but here's the the beauty of that, because that sounds really hard, and and even as we've walked through 6 through 10, there might be some level of discouragement, like that's a lot, and man, putting my sins on the table, there's a lot of guilt, and a lot of shame, and a lot of anger, and a lot of sin, but the beauty for those who know Jesus is that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And as a result of that, the question that follows is, well, how is that even possible? You don't know my life. You don't know some of the things I've done, some of the things I did. Man, my heart is broken. Like, that sounds good. I just don't know how to reconcile that. John does not leave us alone. He kind of gives us an answer. Not kind of, he gives us an answer in the beginning of chapter two. John opens up by saying, my little children, now remember, last week I told you he's going to address uh, the church as little children, as uh, beloved, right? He's not trying to look down on you. He's, he is an older man 
who, who just, he has, a, he has the heart of a father for his church. And so he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, right there, all of us should raise our hand, right? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the question was, man, in light of everything that we saw in verses 6 through 10, how is it possible? How can we be made or how can we be obedient children given the nature of our sin? That, yes, I get it. We've been freed from the power of sin, but the presence of sin still lingers. I'm discouraged. I am filled with shame and I have guilt. And I hear Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those in Jesus what, is, what does that mean? John addresses it by telling us who is our hope. He says, Jesus is your hope. And he begins by saying that Jesus is your advocate, that he is the one who goes to bat for us. His work on the cross not only reconciles or brings us into relationship with the Father, but that means that we have access to the Father because of the work of the Son, that Jesus intercedes on our behalf because of his work for us on the cross. Jesus goes to bat for you. He is going to bat for you right now. That when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you, but he sees Jesus in you and the work of the Holy Spirit abiding in you. The hope that you and I have to embrace zero condemnation is because Jesus is our advocate. He goes on to say, Jesus is righteous. That is that Jesus is the only one without sin. That our unrighteousness, our poor standing with God has been paid for by the righteousness of Jesus. There's that fancy word where he imputes his righteousness onto us. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus bore our unrighteousness and imputes, gives, gifts, hooks us up, whatever you want to use. He gives us his righteousness. So the righteousness that you and I walk in in the everyday is not a righteousness that belongs to us. It's an alien righteousness that was given to us on behalf of Jesus for us on the cross. And so he continues, Jesus is faithful. This is going back up to verse 9 in chapter 1. Jesus is faithful. That is what he has spoken, what he has declared, what he has promised, has, does, and will come to pass. One of those promises is that he will remember your sins no more. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, we talked about that. He, that is Jesus, is faithful, to uh, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive. The cleansing, the transformation, that is something that he is doing in us as a result of the Holy Spirit abiding in us. Last one is that Jesus is our substitute. 
John uses the word propitiation. It's a nice SAT word. And what that means is that not only did Jesus take on the wrath of God for us, like it could have ended there, but he takes the wrath of God for us on the cross and then exchanges his righteousness for our unrighteousness. Propitiation is a two-way street, right? You've heard it set up here uh, different ways. That is, uh, uh, he paid for our debt with his credit. He has given you his righteousness as he has bore your unrighteousness. It is uh, his obedience, his perfect obedience, that has paid for our disobedience. Jesus is our substitute. And as a result, he is ready to pardon anyone who turns to him in repentance and belief. That Jesus on the cross freely offers the gift of salvation to anyone who would repent and believe. And so with that being said, all of that to say, church, does your doctrine begin with Jesus? I want you to chew on it. I want you to write it down. I want you to tattoo it with a Sharpie, all right? Some of you are like, no, write it down with a Sharpie. I want you to see it. Tape it. Put it, uh, put it on your mirror while you're brushing your teeth or doing whatever it is you do in the morning, right? Does your doctrine begin with Jesus? In addition to that, as a result of what the Apostle John has so sweetly said to us, the encouragement is for you and I to step into the light. You can flip through the pages of Scripture and see Jesus calling people to step into the light. And, and when he does, I haven't necessarily seen someone who isn't timid or afraid or ashamed or scared or shaking as they do it. And Jesus doesn't condemn them, condemn them. Instead, he receives them. He forgives them. So, man, if you're feeling that, the, the guilt, shame, there's no condemnation if you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus and you're like, man, there's guilt, shame, anger, and pain, and sin, he begs you to step into the light. Again, I don't, I don't know anybody in the pages of Scripture that wasn't scared or timid or ashamed or filled with guilt or filled with sin and scared to be vulnerable. But unlike the concert, we're not left in our vulnerability. He actually meets us where we are and brings us hope and redemption through the promise of His Word. And so if you, if you know Jesus turn away from your sin. Repent. Confess and repent. Repenting simply means a change of mind, a change of direction. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Let's get to work. That's right. Let's do it. But let it begin first with God, not with the work. And if you don't know Jesus, man, he, he invites you to come to know him, that he is ready to pardon all who turn to him in repentance and belief. You don't get hooked up with a car. You get hooked up with a new heart, a renewed mind, and a new life. A new life that is rooted in him 
and His work for you. Biblical doctrine informs fervent devotion. Let's pray. God, the gospel is that Jesus has canceled our debt, and uh, in doing so, he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness, who we used to be, into the kingdom of light, who we are in him. God, I know, and I know this is my heart often, I know we want to begin to think about the work. What do I need to do? How do I need to change? Who do I need to talk to? blah, 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 all that is really good. And you beg us, you call us to begin with you. And so, Lord, as we respond to your word this morning, may our response through the rest of our time together begin with you. God, as we enter into a response of the giving of our stuff, as we have spoken about before, that begins with you. So God, would our, would our doctrine inform our giving so that we would make much of you? And Holy Spirit, please do not stop being at work because we're not done responding Nevertheless, may our giving be a demonstration of your work in us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.